This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It's Wednesday, October 25th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we have a speaker, finally a speaker. They tried to go with Jim Jordan again and again and again and again, and instead they went with James Johnson. Wait, you're saying I thought the guy they elected was Mike Johnson? Not that I'd ever heard of him. I had, but you hadn't. But maybe you did. Maybe you've heard of him more than me. But isn't his name Mike Johnson? Yes, it's James Michael Johnson. Therefore, Jim Jordan, James Johnson, it really shows the broad range and diversity of candidates that Republicans are looking for. And that was apparently a problem to many critics of the choice. It turns out, now that we're getting to know Mike Johnson, he's stringently against abortion. Well, guess what? He is a conservative Republican. He denied the results of the 2020 election, as did the majority something close to the vast majority of Republicans in the House of Representatives who were there in 2020. I don't want to have to admit it, but it was kind of a prerequisite of the job, or at least it correlated to the other values that the people doing the voting were looking for. Someone like them, maybe someone who could give them cover, who did vote to not certify the results of the 2020 election. So we're getting a conservative, we're getting someone anti-abortion, we're getting someone who's not too thrilled with homosexuality, and we're getting someone who not just denied the results of the abortion, but gave a little bit of credence to Hugo Chavez's involvement with Dominion voting systems. That all said, we got a Speaker of the House, third in line to the presidency. Patty Murray, the fourth in line, or you know, third in the line of secession, fourth up for the job if you include the president. Patty Murray can now breathe a more easy sigh of relief. There was so much pressure on Patty Murray when she was walking around knowing that if Joe Biden couldn't do the job and if Kamala Harris decided not to, it would be Patty Murray's time, the speaker pro temporare. It was only a temporare position for her to be third, third under the U.S. Constitution. I don't know what the Mike Johnson speakership will bring, I do know that the man is one day and one month younger than me. It kind of bums me out to think all that I haven't achieved compared to him. Then again, I knew that Hugo Chavez had almost nothing, almost definitely nothing to do with the results of an election that happened years after he died, but also, and more to the point, years after he never had anything to do with the voting machines that were used to conduct the 2020 election. But congratulations, Speaker Johnson, on the results of this election. Now, the people's body can do a little bit of the people's business. Let's get funding something. On the show today, the demise of a stone fruit company you'd never heard of. It is actually kind of sad with, I'm going to say, a fairly clear villain. But first, Vincent Bevins, former Brazil correspondent for the LA Times, the author of the new book, If We Burn the Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. 
In it, he covers protests ranging from 2010 to 2020. But today, in our interview, we will look at Brazil, a country that he lived in the longest, other than the United States, and what lessons the protests of Brazil have for the world at large. Vincent Bevins, up next. Vincent Bevins is a journalist who is or was based in Brazil, and he noticed uh, originating from a massive outpouring of protests there, something going on in the world. And he's written a book about the phenomenon that between 2010 and 2020, so many mass protests apparently led to, well, what? That was the question. They swept the world. Did they have the same cause? Were they conducted the same way? What's been the effect? This is his book, If We Burn, The Mass Protest Decade and the Missing Revolution. Vincent, welcome to The Gist. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So in Brazil, it was, tell me if I'm getting the name of this place right, Bahia? Uh, Bahia. Bahia, and there were protests over the price of a bus ticket. That's how it started, right? Yeah, this this was the sort of the origin story of a group that ends up mattering quite a lot in 2013. Uh, a group called the Movimento Passe Livre, or the Free Fair Movement, is formed after they're inspired by some sort of uh, unexpectedly raucous protests against public transportation. And they put together a group which is dedicated to, put, to, to creating the same kinds of protests. And, and, and that's what leads to the particular explosion that is my involvement in this, in this book. Yeah, so what was your job? What were you doing in uh, Brazil at the time? Yeah, so this um, fast, fast forward after they, they, they create this group, uh, it's 2013, and I've been sent there starting in 2010 to work as a foreign correspondent. By then, I'm the correspondent for the Los Angeles Times. Um, I got there initially to cover a booming country with a very popular left-of-center government. It was still very popular in, just before these protests exploded. Um, and this group was um, organizing demonstrations on the street, as you say, against the rise in a bus fare. Now, what happens is that a police crackdown, a very harsh police crackdown, leads for leads to an unexpected surge of sympathy for the protests from the media and in wider sections of Brazilian society. What you get is very quickly is millions of people coming into the streets. But these new arrivals bringing things into the streets change what's happening. They, the original uh, organizers sort of lose control of the narrative, certainly lose control of who's out there and what they're asking for. And Born in this moment, you can find several elements that if you follow the story long enough, and that's part of what the book does. The book seeks to be really a global history looking at um, 10, 12, 13 countries, depending on how you count it. But if you follow this history forward, a lot of elements were born in this strange and unexpected explosion that helped to derail, ultimately remove the center-left government in power and then throw their weight behind extreme right president Jair Bolsonaro, who ends up winning um, an election a few years later. So when the protest uh, started gaining attention and sympathy, what were the means of communication that people found out about it? Just remind us where social media was then. Yeah, this was the moment, this was still in the part of the decade, um, 10 years ago, starting with maybe the Iran uh, protest in 2008, but really taking off in in with the arrival of the so-called Arab Spring in Tunisia and Egypt, this very common assumption, this deep belief that 
um, the internet, whatever happened on the internet, whatever whatever kind of organization or whatever kind of explosion that came together as a result of social media was necessarily positive, necessarily progressive, and sort of in a strange way, everyone believed that even if they all disagreed on what progress means, you know, sort of everyone thought that the internet was going to be good for just democratizing the world. Um, and so this group, um, a group, a very small and very disciplined uh an idealistic group of anarchists and punks and leftists were, you know, texting their friends, but also they had a Facebook group. Um, the way that a lot of people could find out after the first protest got a little bit of attention, what was going to happen next, when the next protest was going to be, would be their Facebook page. And not only would they announce on their Facebook page where the next event was going to be, there were sort of endless debates on in the discussion se sections of those Facebook pages over the next week after they... Um, yeah, after this unexpected surge of sympathy from parts of the country that they had never expected to see surge, uh, a surge of sympathy from. So so the surge of sympathy, though, was uh, helped along by social media. Uh, it wasn't. Is that right? I, I just want to get that right. Absolutely. It was social media and media. And on this day in June in 2013, when the crackdown comes, I'm on the streets, too. The crackdown hits me. The crackdown also hits a lot of other people that... Um, whose repression is very shocking to the Brazilian, uh, to, to wider Brazilian society, including like mainstream Brazilian media that had been saying two days earlier, we need to crack down and get these kids off the streets, like enough and is enough. Mm -hmm. But actual members of the mainstream Brazilian media also got hit in the crackdown. So you got images rapidly reproduced, spreading around the country of sort of quote unquote innocent, respectable, middle class, Brazilians uh, really badly injured, and this is what galvanizes not only social media support, but the but traditional media, the old, um, the most important newspapers and television uh, channels in the country to flip their their message entirely and say, no, this is a great thing. This wait, this is a great thing. What's the great thing? So the the movement, the movimento passe livre. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. movement passe livre. So the the first four protests, the base of the. The consensus in the mainstream media in Brazil was this has gone too far. We need to crack down. We need to get these kids off the streets. Then they flip entirely after members of their own organizations are attacked and say, actually, the people are coming to the streets in defense of the right of self-expression, the freedom to bring whatever you whatever message you want to the streets. The big mainstream media in Brazil is never probably going to agree with the actual goals of this original group, which is quite radical. But they flip entirely and say, actually... This is a great thing. So yeah, the the set of protests. And then where do the uh, the anarchists, the punks, do they come in to take advantage of the movement? Is that where they're? Uh, th is that your contention of how they're interacting with this whole ecosystem? No, the 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 anarchists and the leftists are at the core of this group that has been around for eight years and like working really hard behind the scenes to to plan this these actions. So for the first four, the first four demonstrations, it is. These committed leftists, anarchists, punks that are the at the core of who's on the streets and who are like taking risks to try to move this forward. Now, very strangely, when the media turns around and says, "Actually, this is a great thing. Actually, this is a a big uh, a grand patriotic outpouring uh, of uh, in in demonstration of Brazil's right to demonstrate," you get all kinds of new arrivals. And the new arrivals have a different idea as to what the protest is about. The new arrivals are often more conservative. And the new arrivals end up actually expelling violently the original 
many of the original organizers from the streets because the original organizers are like out and out leftists like they're clearly radical uh and a lot like when like sort of the all of brazilian society swarms and joins you get the arrival of people that we would now recognize as the beginnings of a far-right movement in brazil Mm -hmm. like radical toughs from the other end of the political spectrum actually throwing throwing them off the streets right yeah, like thugs, ultras, the uh, equivalent of soccer hooligans, these kind of people. Well, some of them, well, they're often in, like, the, the, the uniform of what becomes the Bolsonaroista movement in Brazil is to wear, like, a, the, the yellow and green soccer jersey. Other, uh, other right. ultra groups in Brazil have different political affiliations, but yeah, that's one way to think about it. So just tell me then, against how this plays out, and we're going to stick with Brazil so we understand, uh, how this plays out against the national politics of the country. Lulu da Silva, as you said, was president. He's uh, he's a leftist. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's very far left. Um, sometimes got compared to the Clinton of Brazil. Let's put aside the fact that there later be corruption charges against him and so forth. But then I think this is right. When this was going on, Dilma Rousseff was in charge. Is that right? Right. Yeah, she has politics similar to Lula's, and she also was a victim of right-wing oppression and was jailed. But, so is the country, but as you say, and as we know, Bolsonaro becomes popular. Was the country a left-leaning country, a right-leaning country, a right-leaning country that happened to have leftist presidents at the time? And how did that play out in terms of the street protests and their asks? Yeah, that's a very good question. So if you if you looked at opinion polling right before the the, the street explosion, Dilma was very popular. Um, Lula's party had been in power since 2003. A lot of people had gotten better off materially. So whether or not deep down they were conservative or more progressive, certainly this package of governance had been had really done well for a lot of people. If you ask the people themselves, um, the um, explosion of See, this very, very strange explosion of every single type of demand that comes into the streets uh, ends up being sort of inevitably directed at Dilma, the president, even though sort of strangely, she probably would have liked just as much as anybody else in the country to expand the welfare state and to... When she was 22, she would have been out there in the protest. A hundred percent she would have been. And this, she had a very hard time understanding how to interact with this with this movement that was now taking um, aim apparently at her, or at least some people in the media were interpreting it as as it taking aim at her. Even so, she was like trying desperately to watch and to figure out what is it that this movement is asking for because I would like to give it to them, right? So mm-hmm. also paradoxically, not paradoxically, but in 2013 there basically wasn't anyone in Brazil that admitted to being on the right. The legacy mm-hmm. of the U.S. backed dictatorship was still so was still had been so, you know, totally rejected by the forces that put back together this young democracy that basically yeah. no, no, even the, the groups that, you know, the, the, the people running for office in 2014 that I would have called center, right, you know, not like in a, in like in a derogatory way, I just would have said, oh, yeah, that's a center, right, uh, political movement. At this point, no one was, was admitting to being on the right. But what you right. have in this strange explosion of demands on the streets and, Millions of people, they all come for their own reasons. And this small original group, a very committed uh, of, of punks and anarchists who are committed to their, this ideal of never imposing their vision on anybody else. They, they refuse to be leaders of their own movement. They certainly refuse to take a leadership position um, vis-a-vis this new and unexpected and very strange surge. 
But what happens is that other actors, cynical actors, people who do have, who do want to seize power, find ways to organize their own street mo movements in this moment. And so I told you that the original group was uh, Movimento Passi Libre, which is MPL, right? Uh, another group in this in this moment of June 2013, and this is a well-funded group of more right-leaning, free market, libertarian um, young people, often with links to think tanks or organizations in the United States, like one of them trained in the Koch brothers here in the U.S. They create a new organization called the MBL, which is an intentional attempt to sort of steal the thunder of the original organizers because now there's this huge wave of sympathy for the first people and the second you know this 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 group of kids with an entirely different ideology they want to privatize everything rather than make everything free uh they create the movimento brasil livre and so as the brazil the brazilian economy falters over the next few years as the beginnings of this corruption investigation begin that we we know comes out in in indirect ways out of the protest explosion in the first place and we now know was breaking all kinds of laws that was indeed deeply corrupt itself. This group that had was born in June 2013 for the exact opposite reasons, but at the same time, they sort of rise to the a leadership position, at least in the media, they present themselves as leaders of a new protest movement, which sort of presents itself to the country and to the world as the, new, the same kind of thing, as a spontaneous people power, internet-led protest mm -hmm. movement. Um, and But they're, they're, they are not, as I said, like committed punks and, and, and idealists, they are going to do what it takes to remove the government. They're going to work with um, the politicians that exist to try to get power themselves. And ultimately, this is one of the reasons that the political class decides to remove Dilma Rousseff. They impeach her and put in somebody that the Brazilian people would have never voted for, did not vote for. I mean, he was on, he was on her ticket as vice president, but then he just sort of flips and, and puts together an entirely new administration, which is much more right wing um, than anything she would have ever presented to the Brazilian people. And then in the election in which Bolsonaro eventually takes office in 2018, the second group, the group that sort of intentionally picked their name to steal the steal the thunder of the first group is also mm -hmm. elected and they enter government uh, in the same in the same year that Bolsonaro takes office. So let's, again, staying in Brazil, because you're an expert here, you were there. Let's do an analysis. The book is analysis of missteps, what went right and what went wrong. So question one, with, without the protests, either the cover of the protests or the backlash to the protests, and you laid it out how it happened, but does, right, does an embrace of conservatism become destigmatized in Brazil. But for the protests, d does conservatism and being a right winger become an acceptable thing in Brazilian society? So obviously, uh, I'm going to try to answer. I'm going to de definitely do my best, but I just want to make, make it clear this is a speculation. I'm sort of coming up with a, a guess based on a, hypo a, a counterfactual. My, yeah. gu my guess is that Eventually, I mean, the, the, the left-leaning Workers' Party had been in power for, they had won three elections in a row. They only won four. Eventually, they were going to have to lose. Mm -hmm. What one would have expected under sort of quote-unquote normal circumstances in Brazil is the traditional center-right party, the, the other party that had been quite important since the reintroduction of democracy um, at the end of the 1980s, 
one would have expected probably them to take up the mantle of the opposition and them to to um, win an election. Impeachment implodes the the center uh, their power center. Yes. Impeachment creates a huge political vacuum into which the the far right rushes. So impeachment probably doesn't happen in the exact same way that it does without the June 2013 explosion because the June 2013 explosion creates these sort of judicial mechanisms that they are, that are used to start the anti-corruption drive and the anti-corruption drive scares a lot of the political class. But then, you know, who knows, five, ten years later, we have seen around the world in the era of a lot of people deeply distrustful of political elites, an era of people congregating in different communities online, we did see in many, many countries over the same 10-year period the like complete collapse of support for the traditional center-left and center-left, center-right parties. Right, without, those, without the specific circumstances that Brazil had. Exactly. So you, made, you might have seen another way in which the internet or deep discontentment or just the kind of generalized understanding globally that that there's something wrong you could have seen that kind of reincorporate itself into a different type of anti-violently anti-political movement somehow down the road vincent bevins is the author of if we burn the mass protest decade and the missing revolution vincent thank you so much thank you so much for having me And now the spiel. We here at Peachfish Productions have a strange interest in the peach industry, the wide world of plump, juicy peaches. Get your mind out of the gutter. Get your mind, in fact, to central California, because we shall dare not just eat a peach, but also consume some peach news. And there's a lot of bad news to pick from in this basket of peaches. Prima Wawona has been squeezed hard. They are America's largest producers of stone fruit, and they are stone cold bankrupt. As a peach enthusiast, I can handle being a bit fuzzy around the edges. But when you slice into the core of this matter, you find rot. And the villain might be venture capitalist Payne Schwartz. They created Prima Wawona out of two pretty big peach players. They made a giant peach purveyor. And it did not work out. The business was valued at $560 million when it was formed in September 2019. Cut to the end of 2022. Between September and the end of that year, Prima Wawona lost 96% of its value. It is now listed as having $679 million in debt. And I'm really sad. I didn't know of Prima Wawona, but I got to know them through reading such articles as Prima Wawona to implement ownership transition through court-supervised process that ran in perishable news, perishable news, hauntingly prescient. But it wasn't just perishable news. It was meeting the people of Prima Wawona. We love fruit. We love to eat fruit. We love especially to eat good fruit. My name is John Slaughter. And I am the director of breeding and research and development for Prima Wallona. And the director of sales and strategy. What makes me get up every morning and go to work is the challenge of making sure that our customers are getting the freshest fruit at the best value. We are working to ensure that Prima Wallona as a company Prima as a brand remains consistent in its quality and its service level 
And we have to make sure that we don't break that tradition. So it's beyond the quality of fruit. It's about the whole company and what we stand for. There were just two of the 10 or so workers and executives that I met by watching a corporate video. And yes, I know corporate videos, they're corporate propaganda. And sure, I know the background music, while it may slap, is meant to be manipulative. And it was. And therefore, I feel very bad for the growers, workers, and staff of Prima Wawona. Payne Schwartz, the venture capitalist, they're being sued by the man who was once CEO, formerly a plum assignment. But the venture capital firm claims this is just a meritless suit. The current CEO blames Primo Wawona's financial difficulties on an $18 million loss tied to the 2020 California wildfires. Their orchards were just a stone fruit's throw away from the blazes. And on the heels of the wildfire came a huge salmonella outbreak and recall. Yes, après cut. Les Deluges. And of course, a series of high-priced consultants were brought in. Prima Wawona's biggest creditor listed in court papers, it's McKinsey and Company. Listen, I can't adjudicate all these claims in the giant peach. The last guy who truthfully tried to tell that story was rolled. I do know that you can buy, you can now form a consortium, or if you have the money yourself, you can buy a formerly dominant stone fruit company. Prima, Wawona, once worth over half a billion, now with debts closer to three quarters of a billion, is accepting offers. The company and creditors have agreed only to consider opening bids of at least $275 million. So as global warming tells us about days at the beach, as... Anyone with an awareness of the fungus Diplocarpon rosé will tell you about beds of roses as only the most credulous cryptozoologist knows the truth about rainbow and unicorns. We now find out from the case of Prima Wawona, success isn't just peaches and cream. It's peaches, cream, consulting firms, venture capitalists, and bankruptcy auctions seeking pennies on the dollar. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Dooperu, and thanks for listening. It's from my one and only true love, Princess Peach. Peach, you're so cool. And with my star, we're gonna rule. Peach, understand, I'm gonna love your tail.